Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with high performance coach Derek Evely. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 51 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Derek Evely on the phone and the reason I wanted to get Derek on because he is one of the go-to guys when it comes to the Bondachuk methodology. So if you're not aware of the Bondachuk methodology uh, and the man himself, don't worry because Derek goes into a lot of detail um, around the methodology, around the time that he spent with, um, with Dr. B. So this episode, that's the kind of the crux of the conversation and I found it fascinating to, to kind of delve into how it came about and, and how Derek's learned from um, Dr. Bondachuk. So just before we get into the episode with Derek, just want to remind you of the, the Pace Performance webinar series, which episode one of that is going out on Sunday the 11th of October at 10 a.m. British summertime, although far from summer even today. So that is with Dan Baker. So that is a webinar, obviously, and but but don't worry if you are asleep uh, at that time, whether if you're in the US, because all the recordings were made available to everyone that books online. So if you are interested, go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Dan Baker. That'll take you to the page with all the information, everything you need to know. From there, you can um, you can purchase the webinar. And, and we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you on the uh, on the 11th of October because it'll be a really good event. So if you are liking the podcast, give me a follow on Twitter and uh, like the page on Facebook. So we are at Pacey Perform and Pacey Performance on Facebook. So you can catch all previous episodes of the podcast if you go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. And all the links that Derek mentions in this episode, and there is quite a few, go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 51. So enjoy the chat with Derek and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, hi guys. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Derek Evely on the phone. So just before we get Derek in, uh, just want to thank, um, who was it that put me in touch with Derek? It was Alex Natera. So thank you. Thanks Alex for, uh, for getting Derek, um, you know, making that connection. So just before we get going, just want to thank Derek for his time uh, and get him to give us a bit of a short introduction on his education, uh, his background and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Derek. Ah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Rob. It's uh, good to be here. Uh, well, currently I am, uh, I'm a stay-at-home dad, to be honest with you. And uh, I'm not fully employed any, any, uh, in, in any sort of, uh, formal way. Um, I'm, uh, I'm basically volunteer coaching and I do a lot of consulting worldwide with, uh, you know, different federations or do conference work and things like that. I don't do a whole lot of it, but, uh, I do enough of it so that it pays for some of the expenses of coaching. And, um, actually my account will tell you it doesn't, but, uh, you know, that's basically, um, that's, that's, that's sort of where I've, where I've gone now. Um, yeah, just sort of sitting enjoying life. I'm not, uh, I, my, my formal education is a, I have a phys ed degree, uh, with a sport focus. Um, uh, 
most of what I know in terms of what we're going to discuss today is all self-taught, self-discovered uh, through mentors, uh, my and uh, especially my work uh, when I was working for the Canadian Athletics Coaching Center, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. That was a big opportunity for me to sort of learn a lot. Uh, a lot of it was with my work with Dr. Bonnerchuk. Um, you know, I only spent about a year with him. Um, uh, you know, hands on, but, uh, you know, we, we, you know, obviously I have a relationship with him and, but I, I learned a lot in that year and, and, uh, you know, and since then, so, uh, and I run that system, that program, that's how I train my throwers. So, um, you know, I kind of, I've always gotten information wherever I can. Dan Path was a big influence on me, probably the biggest influence on me, um, in, in terms of an overall coaching, um, philosophy and uh, some of the, uh, you know, a lot of the nuts and bolts pieces of coaching. Got a lot of information from Dan. Uh, when I was a young coach, I did four visits down to Texas when he was a coach at the University of Texas, four week-long visits. And, uh, you know, he would uh, hand me the uh, the keys to the to his office when he left at night. I'd stay there till about one, two in the morning, photocopy everything I could and and, uh, you know, and taking it home and studying it and working with it and things like that. So, um, uh, you know, I've worked a bit with Ishvan Bali in uh, the, the Hungarian sports scientist helping develop long-term athlete development models in Canada here. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about some of the influences. Uh, my own personal coaches, Andy Higgins, was a big influence on me. Charlie was an influence on me as well, Charlie Francis. Um, you know, so I've, I've got a pretty good pedigree in terms of, uh, in terms of mentorship. I'm not really sure what that says about my coaching because <laughs> I'm not as accomplished as any of them, but, uh, but, you know, I have a passion for, for, uh, for systems training and things like that. And, and, um, you know, uh, yeah, I just enjoy talking about it. So, cool. So you, you worked, uh, worked for a time, uh, with UK athletics, and obviously been an Englishman and in the kind of um, the back end of the, the 2012 Olympics. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the UK athletics, what, you, what your role was um, and, and what the buildup was like to 2012? Sure. Uh, I was hired by Kevin Tyler and Charles Van Comedy. Uh, Kevin Tyler was, has been a longtime friend of mine since we were kids, uh, teenagers. And, um, uh, he hired me at the Canadian Athletics Coaching Center. Was a director there. Was my boss uh, when he they the UK Athletics hired him. And he was the head of coach. He was the head of coaching for UK Athletics in that four year period to lead up to to, to 2012. Uh, a few months after he left, they offered me a job there as a center director uh, at the Loughborough Training Center. Um, the British uh, established two. Uh, Olympic training centers going into 2012. One was in London that serviced all the London athletes and one was in Loughborough that serviced everybody else in the UK. And uh, Dan, I just spoke to Dan Pat. He ran the one in London. I ran the one in, in Loughborough. Um, tough gig in, in a lot of ways. It was, uh, you know, me going into it with zero management skills or, or experience and all of a sudden found myself managing uh 30 plus sports science and, and uh, national coaches, uh, sports science staff and national coaches. But I think, uh, you know, it took me a while to get, uh, you know, so kind of get used to the role. But once I did, I think we, we, we did some good work and, um, 
it was an amazing experience, mostly because I worked with some phenomenal people in that organization. That was a great organization to work for. Um, they really, at the you know, I, I uh, can't speak for it now. I haven't, I haven't been back there in three years, almost three years. But um, but uh, leading up to 2012, you know, they they really um, handpicked the management staff that uh, that ran all of that, and they were all people with you know. Um, with a lot of credibility. I probably had the least credibility of, of sort of the upper management there um, and was the least accomplished. Um, but some of the guys I worked with, like Charles and Kevin had produced Olympic medalists and world champ medalists. And, you know, these were guys with, with big uh, technical backgrounds in the sport and they were running the show. And I think, you know, that we were able to, uh, we were able to make a big difference there. Um, I think Kevin in particular, in particular, really had a huge impact on coaching in, in athletics in the UK. Some of his hires, Tom Crick, who did a great job. I think he's now the, the head guy at uh, in in um, uh, in Northern Ireland running the show there. Um, you know, we just had a great staff. We had a guy named uh, Simon Nathan, who was our operations guy, and he's now he was phenomenal. He's he's now moved on. He's the performance director at Australia Athletics. So it's you know, it was a good, good group of people. I learned a lot and, uh, you know, I, it was, uh, best thing I ever did. So how did that come to an end, Derek? Well, at, you know, I, I was running the center. Um, I enjoyed doing that, but my passion is in coaching. Um, um, they offered me a good coaching position, uh, when I, you know, after, after the games, but, uh, my, my situation, my home situation. My wife is a is a lawyer. Uh, works for our national railway here in Canada. She was doing her job long distance um, the whole time we were in in Britain because there was an expectation that we were going to move back. So at the end of the games, we basically it was her job or or my job, and you know we just decided that you know there's probably a little bit more security in hers, and we decided to move back to Canada. And, uh, you know, but I, you know, those things, you know, I mean, the, the UK was a big adjustment for us, but there were some things there that were, that were, we really enjoyed. Um, I kind of kick myself these days. I don't think I gave it enough opportunity. You know, I'm a big music fan. Um, didn't go to a single show in the three years I was there. So <laughs> I really kicking myself for that. The schools that my kids went to were phenomenal, but they got a really good start on on their education there. So there's a lot of there's a lot that I miss, and I miss working with the people at UK Athletics. They were they were a good crew. Mm -hmm. So what? So as far as a system goes to produce athletes, how does the UK system compare to the US or Canadian system? Um, they're totally different. I mean, it, it's very hard to compare them. I mean, in terms of if, you, if you're talking about like the, the Federation, I mean, the, the American Federation does not have as much input and support their, their top athletes anywhere near what UK athletics does. It's not, you can't even, they're on different planes. Um, you know, but they, their development system is their NCAA system. And, you know, those who survive that and get through that, you know, there's not, you know, I, I hear a lot from the American coaches that there's not a lot of opportunity for the athletes. Once they get out of that, they've got some of their, some of their um, centers and that, you know, some of their, 
some of their training centers now that are doing okay at, you know, some of the work that Nike's doing and things like that. I think they support a lot, but, you know, generally speaking, it's not, it's, it's not the, you know, the formal systematic program that you'd see in the UK In Canada, we try to do, we try to follow along the same lines that they have in the UK, but we have way less support. So, you know, uh, and, and, you know, geography plays a huge part of that. Um, you know, centralization, I think, uh, made a lot of sense to some degree in the UK. I'm not so sure that makes a lot of sense in Canada. Um, at least if you're going to do it, how you do it has to really reflect the geography and the fact that you have these pockets of, uh, of development happening, all over the country and those need to be supported um you know for the sport to grow and so to you know start taking athletes out of that and putting them in centers is sometimes appropriate sometimes it isn't and so we struggle with that a lot um you know and being next to the us and the and the ncaa system the ncaa system sorry we uh you know we we have to manage that as well because that's a big draw for a lot of athletes it works for a lot of athletes it's a good it's a good option for a lot of athletes, but it's not a, an option for every athlete. And so we, you know, we, every time we have a regime change, everybody, you know, it seems to, uh, everybody's attitude seemed to shift a little bit towards it, but, uh, or in terms of, you know, how, how we're going to manage these things. And I don't know if we've ever quite gotten it. There was a lot of advantages that the UK has, you know, having everybody so close, you can, you can get all your national coaches together very easily in a meeting. You can, you know, and your athletes and you can, you can have uh, a core set of, of sports science and medical people that can regularly see all your athletes because nobody has to drive more, really more than a couple hours to get somewhere. Well, that's not possible in Canada. So we, you know, we need to find ways to support people that are not in our central communities that that are doing good work, right? Because, you know, these are our future, our future coaches and our future practitioners, and we need to support them. And I'm not so sure we do, we always do the group best job of doing that. So it's it's hard to compare those three systems for the for for the various reasons, but hopefully I gave you some insight there. No, definitely. Very interesting. So you mentioned um one of the, the key influences uh, in your career and something that I want to kind of uh, focus the, the, the bunch of the, uh, the talk on that we're going to have is your influence of, of Bondshuk and how, do you want to give us a bit of an insight how that came about, you know, the, the main things that you learn from him whilst working with him? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, you know, there's, there's a few of us, there's two or three of us around that are kind of becoming the de facto Bondshuk spokesperson people <laughs> um, simply because we we've worked with them or uh there's you know there's myself there's there's martin bingisser who runs a phenomenal site um that his 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 hammer website uh there's a guy a high school coach in uh in southern california who i i chat with pretty much daily and he runs this system better than anybody i've seen and it's phenomenal. This guy's doing this in high school and, and you know, the results he's getting, it's just it's shocking. Uh, he's got a very systematic head. His name's Nick Garcia. He's one of the best coaches I know. Um, but he's, you know, he's got a real good situation in high school down there and he's very happy there. But, but ha having said all that, I, I just want to say at the beginning that I don't speak for Dr. B. And I don't, you know, because he's very peculiar about that kind of thing and, and it's, and as he should be. 
Um, I don't think any of us have this system figured out at all, like 100%. Um, I have actually, I don't even really talk to them a lot about the, about the system anymore because every time I do, I get, I get more questions than I do answers. And so, um, I've just taken the basic, uh, you know, the basic, um, the basic system and I've, I've, you know, tried to really study it and make it work and, uh, you know, follow the rules of adaptation and things like that. So, you know, just off, I just need to say that at the beginning. And uh, so, you know, what, what, what we'll talk about today is the Bonner Trek system as I see it and I practice it. You talk to any of the athletes in this program, you may get, you know, a confirmation of a lot of what I'm talking about. You may get a completely opposite um, viewpoints and experiences that they've had because his system is highly fluid. It's, it's highly individual. It's very plastic. It changes all the time. So, you know, just, you, you need to keep that in mind, but we can discuss more of that. I, I, I first came across him. I was, when I was coaching Dylan Armstrong, who is the, the Canadian shot putter, multiple world champ medalist, Olympic bronze medalist. Um, I coached him from 14 to the age of 25. I coached him up to almost 20 meters, 1983, I think was his PB when, when Dr. B came and, um, and Dylan, um, you know, but Dylan was a hammer thrower as a junior. He was a world junior champ, silver medalist. And, uh, one of Dr. B's, uh, his his son-in-law, his name is Igor Shiverev. He was a uh, he was a NHL hockey player that had retired and was living in Calgary with uh, with Dr. Bonnerchuk's daughter. Um, they sent me an email one day saying, um, um, you know, uh, I my co or my my father-in-law is in Kuwait coaching. He's looking to come to Canada and he would like a job coaching throws. Um, do you, can you, can you give him a job? Basically that's what the email said. And, and it was like, here's his resume. And, and right <laughs> off the top, it was like, number one is like coach Yuri Sidiq world record holder. And so I instantly knew who it was. Cause I, anybody who's coaches hammer studied Bonner Chuck stuff. And, and I, uh, I was like, wow. I was like, well, first of all, this is a joke. And I thought it was a friend of mine, a friend of mine named Glenn McAtee, who him and I, uh, especially those who follow us on Facebook know him and I go back and forth. We, we, we take shots at each other all the time. We're very close friends. He's a very good coach. Used to coach at Clemson University. Anyways, I thought it was him playing a practical joke on me. And I I said, I sent him an email and I said, hey, yeah, that's pretty funny. The Bonnerchuk uh, email. And he's like, that wasn't me. And I was like, wow. And so I couldn't figure it out. So I, I called the guy and it turns out, obviously, this was legit. And um, long story short is it took years, took two or three years. Dr. B had some health problems. He wanted to, he was working with the Kuwaiti hammer thrower, wanted to get him through the Olympics in 2004. But um, uh, but eventually in 2005, he uh, he moved to Camus and he moved part of the deal. You know, we at, at, at first we said no to him. Uh, for two reasons. One is there wasn't a lot of support within the club to, to bring another coach on. You got to remember at the time I was the only full-time private coach in Canada. I was the only guy in a club that was working full-time. Now, now it's a little bit different. There's people have, there's a lot more of that, still not enough, but more of it. But at the, so 
you know, they were, and I was making peanuts really as, as a, as a, as a coach doing, I was happy doing what I was doing. I was well looked after, but I wasn't getting rich um, because the club, it was a small club of like 150 athletes. They just didn't have a lot of money. So we, we initially said, you know, we would love to have you here, but um, you know, we, we just simply can't afford it. And you have to understand that like, no one's going to give you a job here. You know, it's be, it, I would be very surprised, but but at the same time, we were just developing, we had started a fundraiser, uh, which you might find amusing. It was a manure sale. We sold bags of manure in the track club. And, um, you know, that was really taking off. In fact, it took off to the point where the in 2004, I think we, or 2003, we made about 50, we just broke $50,000 in a weekend selling manure. Wow. That's a lot of shit. It's a lot of shit. And we, 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 in fact, it's about 80 to 100 tons of it that we would ship into Campbell's, bag it all, and we would deliver it home to home for, at the time, it was about five or six bucks a bag. And we were just making money hand over fist, right? And under, under a lot of, you know, a lot of the, uh, a, a lot of the laws in, in British Columbia or in Canada regarding nonprofit societies, you can't, you know, you can't show a profit, right? So we were finding, having a hard time finding ways to spend the money we had so much of it so so we initially said no but a couple of over you know i kept in touch with igor and over a couple of years i said to him uh you know I, we went back to him i talked to our club president at the time who was dylan armstrong's mom and i said well why can't we do this like you know and so we offered him a very modest salary and we said look this is what we can do we'll give you an apartment you can live in my basement i, I renovated my basement apartment so I, I got it all set up for him and his wife and he grabbed it without even hesitating and so we uh we bought him a plane ticket flew him over and he, on april 1st of 2005 the day of the manure sale for that year <laughs> i went and picked him up at the airport covered in uh, coveralls on covered in shit um I, I picked up him and his him and his him and his uh son-in-law igor made the trip with him drove him to my house put his bags down i said look here's your place you know i i i gotta get back to the manure sale i'll be back i'll be back later tonight we can chat and i came home at 10 o'clock at night that night and this really, this little story here really tells you who Dr. B is. I came home at 10 o'clock that night. I'd been working since about six in the morning, hauling these bags of manure. And with all, I mean, we had a, we had a huge cruise that were going all over the city. And, but I was just stinking covered in it. You know, I, I came home and the door to the, uh, the door to his apartment where in my basement, which, you know, that connected to my, to my house, flies open and he goes and he he couldn't speak almost any english at the time and he goes Derek, Derek. he goes sit sit we write we write right right and he wanted to write a book right there and i'm like so so what he had done is he had spent that whole night writing writing pages for a book translating them word for word in an english russian dictionary and then he wanted me to go over it and i would you know rework it and make it and so we actually, for the next five months, four or five months, we wrote a book, and um, and it was we we stopped after six chapters because it got. Um, I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. I'm sorry. I hope that's it's okay. Fine, mate. We, it's uh, fine. No worries. 
we um, we uh, we wrote a book. It was about six chapters, and it was basically if you get his periodization books now, the ones that are you know a little have the rough translation. It was basically a combination of a lot of the chapters, mainly the first one, but with some other things in there. And that's where I learned it. That's where I learned everything from him was writing that book with him. And, and then, you know, we would we would literally go out. We'd coach two workouts a day. I'd sit there with him, watch him coach. Um, then we would go home and we'd write for about three, four hours a day. And uh, and basically it was me taking this gobbledygook that he had translated and me trying to make sense of it and ask him questions. But remember, his English wasn't good. So it was painful. It was so painful. And uh, after about six chapters, and oh, and I did all those charts, all those charts you see in the first book, particularly in the second one, I, I, I did all those in the original book. And so uh, I did them all on, on, on Word. And uh, but it got so painful. We both we both were arguing so much about things that um, because he just couldn't quite understand what I was trying to say. And, uh, you know, he would there's a, something with English Russian translation where opposites are really screwy. So a lot of the problems we had were he would think what I was trying to write down. He would think I was turning things around into the opposite. What it, what, what it wanted, what he wanted to mean. And I, by the, it would take me 15 minutes to explain it to him. And then he would go, oh, okay, okay. You know, and after six months of that, we got kind of five months of that, we, we, got, we got tired of it, both of us. So we shelved the book. No one's ever seen that book. It was shelved and I didn't want to see any more of it. He didn't want to see any more of it. And about seven years later, six, seven years later, I was mentioning it to Martin and, um, now, I'm not allowed to share this book. I promised Dr. B I wouldn't do it. And it's all in the books he's got now anyway. So, but, I, you know, I always look back on that book and I thought to myself, you know, you know, yeah, it's probably, I uh, was probably, his books are way better. You know, he's, you know, because he actually had it translated. And I literally hadn't looked at it in six, seven years. I mentioned it to Martin and then uh, Martin said, well, can I look at it? And I said, sure, I'll send you a copy of it, but you don't, you can't, you know. You know, because just I wanted to honor Dr. B's request, not, you know, I'm not going to, I can't be sending stuff out. Anyway, so I, I sent it to Martin and Martin goes, this is, this is really good. Like I can, I can actually understand some of the concepts. And so I went back and I read it and I was like, yeah, we did a pretty good job with it. You know, I was, pr I was pretty proud of it. And so we, um, um, I still go back now and I look at it, particularly the chapter on periodization. He's got a lot of rules there that I still follow, which a lot of which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about today. But um, yeah, so anyways, that's how I learned from him was writing that book and, you know, being able to talk to him every day and, and watching him and how he did things. And so it was, uh, it was an incredible experience. He's an amazing guy. He's uh, hard to figure out, hard to, very easy to misinterpret, but he was, you know, it was a good experience for me. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned there about periodization. So do you just want to give us a bit of an insight into his kind of way he periodizes his training? Well, very broad subject. Yeah. That's a big question. Okay. Question. So it's, it's, you know, there's, it's really, you know, it's the thing I like about it is that um, it's hugely individualized and it's, it's, in fact, that's the basis for everything that he does. Okay. So the way that I try, that I usually try to explain this when I'm explaining to people is that it takes 
it takes what our traditional ideas of periodization, regardless of whether you're talking about uh, a stage methodology or, or Vershansky, or you're talking about, you know, any or, you know, Matt Viev or any of those classic periodization models, which are a lot in, in a, uh, which are still relevant to a lot of people today. It, it takes that and it flips it right around 180 degrees. So, and by that, I mean, if you look at the, the, the old periodization models, what they do is they go, okay, look, you're an athlete. Let's say you're a, let's, I'll say, uh, let's say you're a discus thrower. You're a discus thrower. You're going to start training here in uh, September 15th. And you need to peak by August 10th in the next year. And what we're going to do there is we're going to divide up the year into, into sections, periods. We're going to do this kind of work here. And you will peak here. And then you will peak here. And, you know, you know maybe what, uh, let's, let's say it's a shot putter and it's indoors. So you're going to peak indoors. Then you're going to peak for summer season. And your body has no choice. We are going to manipulate all those variables so that you do peak. He does the exact opposite. What he, he does is he, 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 and, and sorry, just to back up, in order to manipulate those variables, we are going to change volume, change intensity. We're going to manipulate those variables. Um, and, you know, your body is going to respond and it's going to respond uh, by this date. And, you know, that's how it works, right? He does the opposite. And I'm not saying that doesn't work. That works really well. And, you know, I mean, it's worked very well for a lot of people. This is just different, okay? It's just a different system. What he does is he he they, he does not wave load volume and intensity at all. And if you read that first book, he in the the very first thing he talks about, at least in our book, he did it was the first thing. But you know, I think in his uh, in his first periodization book, he talks about he talks about the large waves of volume and intensity. And how uh, you know the more modern systems don't don't have the huge waves, okay? So imagine doing you know um, you know uh, you know uh, if you're say you're doing German volume training or something like that, where you're doing you know in the fall you're doing huge amounts of general general type work, uh, very little throwing, if any specific work, and that that wave is followed by a wave of maximal strength and that wave is followed by a wave of specific strength. And then that wave is followed by a wave of throwing very specific work. And then you peak at the end of it. Okay. Everything's built on a, on a foundation of what comes before it. He doesn't do that. What he does is he, you know, he uses mainly what's called a complex methodology, but that's Again, it gets a bit complicated because the complex methodology is just one of the various methods he has in his book. Um, I think in the first book he talks about 16 of them, but he does um, normally in athletics, we use about four or five of those. He uses and throws mostly complex. Um, and in uh, maintenance periods, he uses the variation. You'd have to look in the books to, to see what those mean, or we can discuss in a bit. But anyways, but the key is, is that he does not manipulate volume and intensity at all. When he gives an athlete a workout, it basically stays the same, okay? And that is the key point. If you don't understand that, you're not going to understand this system, and this system is not going to work for you. Because the moment that you go to change anything in an athlete's program, their system is going to react to it. That's not bad. It's just the way it is. It's not good. It's not bad. It's the way it is. And in this system, he chooses not to do that. Okay. 
So the workouts stay the same. Let's say I give you a workout or I, I give the shot putter a workout. It's 20 throws with a couple different types of shot. Then they go in the weight room. They do some squats or some cleans, let's say. Then they go and they do some other general work. And there maybe there's some special exercises in there. That doesn't change from day to day. They will repeat that. Okay. And then what he does is he try, they measure every day. They have a measurable in throwing. It's very easy to use for, uh, um, it's very easy to have a specific measurable every day because you just measure your throws, right? And I've been using bar velocities too, but which we, which we can talk about later to do that. Um, but let's say you measure every day and you will find that there's a curve that an athlete follows there. Okay. They, and if you look at his books, one of the big confusing things for a lot of people is the, the three reactions he talks about where one, you know, reaction one is the athlete um, grows. So the performance gets better. It's a, it's a line on a graph and that line goes up and then it plateaus. Then that's number one. Number two is the, the line goes down. So the initial results in training go down, then they come up, then they plateau. And then there's a number three, which is they plateau, then they go down, then they come up and they and they plateau again at a higher level. Okay. In all three of those, the there's growth. So they they finish off throwing further than they started. Okay. Uh, I think that comes from Matvia, but I'm not entirely sure about it. But that's that's standard, that's pretty classic Russian research that those or that's where it comes from in those three reactions okay so all athletes so you you've given them a, a you've given them a workout uh maybe it's two workouts maybe it's three but we'll just use one for example just because it makes it easier to explain and you you're recording the results and then what you do is when they when that athlete peaks so when they when you know they're in peak condition they're and they're throwing their furthest Okay, then you have to decide what you're going to do. So let's say that's the end of the development cycle. All right. That period from when you started to the end, that's your development cycle. And you measure that how many workouts or how many, you know, however you measure it. It's, uh, it's not really we don't really do it with time. We do it with the number of, of sessions um, of training sessions. So say it took 30 training sessions to reach that peak condition then if you can repeat that, if you can repeat that down the road over the course of the next year or so, then you have a very stable um, block of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a, a very uh, stable unit to work with. That's your development cycle. So you know if you can repeat that, then you know that in 30 sessions that athlete's going to peak and you'd be amazed. Like in my experience, it's very reliable. If you, <clears throat> and in, and in Martin's experience and particularly in Nick Garcia's experience, the guy I told you in Southern California, he's, I talked with him a lot to find out what, what his, you know, what, what, what his, um, what the numbers he gets are because, you know, he's, and he finds the same thing that it's very consistent. You, you know, with some athletes, you can peg it on a single session. You'll say it's 32 sessions, right? Um, but you know, so it's usually a range, you know, uh, when I worked with, uh, Sophie Hitchin in, 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 uh, in the UK, uh, when she was young, it was about 45 to 50 sessions when, as she grew and she got more used to the system and she became more an elite athlete, 
that would whittle that got whittled down to about 34 to 36 sessions and she set a british record in qualifying at the olympics in 2012 that was her 34th session and she and i could show you that that graph it just went straight up she was a number one okay mark dry the other guy that i uh, the the male i worked with there he was usually about 28 to 32 sessions um sultana Frisell, the girl the woman i work with now she's um depending on how many programs we use, she's usually 16 to 24. So everybody's different, okay? So you gotta find out what is that, what is that number of sessions, what does that period look like? Um, I've made it sound a lot simpler than it, than it actually is because you have to take into consideration the type of work they're doing and the ball weights and all that kind of thing, but it's essentially that's what you're doing. Once you have done that, and the athlete has reached peak condition. You have your development cycle. It's finished. They've reached peak condition. You have to then decide what you're going to do. Um, and this is the part that I struggled with initially, and I'm still experimenting with a lot. And that is, in order, you can't just repeat. And this is all, all of this I'm explaining to you is in his books, but it's not, you won't get it from the text. you got to look at the charts, okay? And so... And, and what I just described to you was, was based on a complex methodology, the complex method, okay? It, it would also work for the variation method. But so the complex method is where you don't change anything through the development cycle. Everything, it just stays the same. You're not changing the exercises. You, you just, that's it. So once they reach peak condition, you have to decide, am I going to try to maintain that peak condition? Because you would maintain it because you would have a series of meets. Say you had you had to maintain form for two months. Then you could just and you and let's say let's say you had to maintain form for one month, <clears throat> and that and that development cycle you just did took you six weeks. You don't have time to do it again. Okay, so you'd have to maintain it. So in order to maintain it, you would basically follow the same format, but you would change the exercises every two weeks. That's called a variation method. And if you look in his books, it's all right there, okay? You'll see there's a chart there where it goes up, where the three lines go up, they reach peak condition, and then he changes to a variation. And when you change to variation, if you change it often enough, they won't drop. And he told me once that you can maintain form that way by, for up to four months doing that. If you have time, then what you want to do is you want to then um, you want to do another development cycle. But the problem is, is you can't just follow it with another development cycle. You have to have a rest period in between. So you need to go into a rest period. And, you know, he says most athletes take three to four weeks of rest before you can do another development cycle. I think he says that in his book. But in reality, we found ways to shorten that. Um, you, you know, using exercise, using an active rest program uh, where we actually throw in it, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, without getting too into the depths of it. But it's, uh, you know, basically we we count the number of session and the number of times that an athlete does, does a, you know, uh, a general strength circuit combined with some throws. Um, and so I he they he in his book, he calls it rest circuit, I, a rest cycle. I call it a wash cycle, like a, you know, because what you're trying to, what, the way I look at it is once that athlete has reached peak condition, they got there using a certain set of exercises, okay? You need to wash that out. 
Okay, you need to wash it out so that when you start the next development program, you're starting with a with a you know the system has is not does not remember those exercises from before because you have to start with a new set. Okay, in order to to create more growth, and so the whole periodization system is his whole periodization system is basically built upon how you manipulate these three cycles: the development cycle the maintenance cycle, and the rest cycle. And um, you can follow a development cycle with another development cycle, but if you look at, and he has that example in his books, but the but they will not grow. The, what they will do, they will maintain for a while, drop down, come back up and maintain at the same level. It looks it looks like the Van Halen logo. If you, <laughs> for those of you, you are Van Halen fans. That's what that's what it that's what it looks like if you don't do a rest or a maintenance cycle after a development cycle. Now, so that's the basic periodization. That's how it works. It's not more it's actually in its in its basic uh, uh, in, in the basic structure, it's very, very simple. What's complicated is is studying that reaction that an athlete has within a development cycle and knowing when to change things. That's what trips people up and that's where people struggle with it. And they struggle with the whole idea of not uh, wave loading volume and intensity. They want to change things that we're used to changing things all the time. Right. And that's, and that works if you can count on the change. But what I found, um, what I found, especially after working with this system is that athletes change are especially, especially elite athletes. They react to changes in training. They're way more sensitive, sensitive to it than we think. Okay. Because in using this system where I don't change it at all at times where for whatever reason I've had to make a change, they've reacted hugely or say, um, you know, there, there needs to be a change. It wasn't planned. Uh, let's say you had to travel or something like that, or you there was an equipment failure or something like that. You change you change an exercise, even in the weight room, their body reacts to it. So to me, I look back on when I used to do a more traditional system, and I think of all the change that was going on um, from week to week that I used to do. I mean, I I used to do what I thought was a bonner truck system with Dylan, and I would change everything every two weeks with him because he thrived on change. Um, but in fact, what I was doing is even in those two weeks, every two to three weeks, even in those those short two to three week cycles, I was every, you know, one day we would be lifting heavy. One day we would be lifting fast. One day we would be throwing uh, 20 throws. Another day we might be throwing. You know what I mean? Like you, you change things up all the time because it's just uh, it's kind of the paradigm that we all operate in when you're doing that kind of system. In this system, you don't do that. And in doing that, I found that I've really come to understand how the body reacts to training. It's really been a, a, a really good education that way. So, you know, and then the last thing I should, should say, and this is one of the benefits to doing this program, is that, you know, um, prior to this, I would, you know, like when I, let's, I'll use Dylan as an example, but I've done this system with, with not just throwers, but sprinters and that, um, you know, prior to this, I know that, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Oh yes. So for, for Dylan, I would do two to three peaks a year. Okay. Maybe triple periodization. Okay. 
um, in this one, we find that that development cycle is a lot shorter than we, you know, athletes come into peak a lot faster when you don't, when you're not changing volume and intensity. Okay. When you're not wave loading it, when things stay the same. So I found with most athletes, I'll get anywhere from six to seven, sometimes eight peaks in a season, depending on how our, our develop, our, our competition season looks. And the idea is, is that with every one of those development cycles, with every one of those peaks, you should see overall growth in the athlete's ability, okay, depending on their age and things like that. Like with, you know, with Sultana right now, you know, uh, it's hard to get growth out of every single cycle because she's 30 years old and she's been a high performance athlete for a long time there's you know whereas if you got an 18 20 year old <clears throat> like with sophie hitchin i got and mark dry like especially in the last year in 2012 with mark dry when you know he was uh he had quit his job and a lot of the sort of the the life things that were kind of holding him back he had really made a commitment towards you know going to the olympics and i i could i could show you graphs where every single cycle he did he improved he got better Okay. So, so the idea is that with more peaks comes more growth overall in the long term, And so you just want to keep doing that and they grow faster. And that's, that's kind of been my experience, both with just with Sophie, with, uh, with Mark, with, uh, and with some of the athletes I've trained with here in Canada, I mean, you know, uh, Sultana, like, um, you know, they, they grow a lot, they grow more and they grow faster when they're, when they're doing this, or at least, faster than when I used the other the other type of training before. Like I said, I'm not saying anything here is better than anything else. I'm just saying this is just sort of the way we do it. Um, and so the other the other big advantage to it, which I heard Dr. B talk about recently and and you know um, is important to point out, if if you, you know, an athlete's growth in performance and their growth to a peak condition is so hugely dependent upon the the nature of that of the exercises that you give them. Okay, so I, and we all know that, right? Certain athletes really respond well to certain exercises and certain schemes, you know, certain loading schemes. And in, if you're talking about throws you're talking about there's certain weights that athletes will really respond to if you have those weights in their program they're going to throw their competitive implement very far there's certain types of work that sprinters really respond well to certain athletes will respond to longer distances other athletes respond respond to shorter more intensive distances so those those all those and you know dr bonichuk considers all that exercises we consider all, when I say exercise, I'm talking about everything, okay? So everybody sort of, um, you know, the, the nature of that development cycle really depends on those, um, the makeup of those exercises. The, what are the combinations and, the, and the, 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 uh, the size and scope of what you're giving them, okay? If you screw that up, so let's say you give athletes exercises because a lot of this is about experimentation, just like any, like for anyone, it's about, you got to try things. You got to throw things against the wall, see what, see what sticks. Some things are going to stick. Some things aren't going to stick. If you throw in a bunch of stuff against the wall one year and you peak once a year and you screw it up, 
Well, you got to wait another year before you can before you can redo it, right? I mean, it's a very simplistic analogy, but it it's you know it it illustrates the point. Whereas when you peak sooner, if you you know, and uh, I had one earlier this year uh, with Sultana that was just you know just picked a bad set of exercises, and there wasn't much growth at all. I didn't get a very good curve. There wasn't a lot of growth. And so, okay, I'm not going to do those. I'm going to look and evaluate what was in that cycle. And there's certain things there that I, that I think were the culprits that were responsible for the lack of growth. Um, I'm going to not put those in the cycle going into world champs or something like that. Okay. So, but I have time to change it because we peak six, seven times a year. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of in a nutshell. I mean, this is a very hard system to explain in 20 minutes, but I think I've kind of just given you the, the, the nutshell. And then, and then, of course, the other thing, which if you're reading the books, you have to really take the time to read the exercise classifications that he has, the four exercise classifications, which going from top to bottom um, are the competitive exercise, which is what you do, the specific development exercises, which are exercises that in, in the in the formal definition, basically they they repeat the pet the, the competitive exercise in movement and in component parts, um, and they stimulate the same system. Okay, so in throwing, that would be stand throws, certain types of drills with throws, drills, you know, in sprinting, those would be you know, towing a cell. Oh, and the other definition is that they can exceed them in certain conditions. So, um, you know, in sprints, it would be towing sleds, running hills, things like that. Um, uh, sprints would be certain drill exercises and, and, and things. That would be SDE, specific development exercises. Then the third one down is SPE, which is specific preparation exercises, which generally speaking, are your weight room exercises, but they're formally they're formally um, uh, explained as um, exercises that do not follow the competitive movement, but they use the same major muscle groups. Okay, so this is where Olympic lifts and squats and things like that really, because as you can as you as you can imagine, they use all the same major you know extensor chains and all these things. Um, they use the same basic large muscle groups, but they don't stimulate, and they do stimulate the same system. Okay, so if you're a thrower, that the nature of that work is going to be brief, explosive, if possible, that kind of thing. And then at the bottom, you have general preparation exercises, which are don't look like the competitive movement and don't stimulate the same system. Um, if you look at some of the presentations I've done that are probably floating around the net, I use a very good graphic to explain that, that Tom Crick, um, our guy at the UK, um, did up. And he just brilliantly explained it in a graphic that makes it, you know, it's shaped like a pyramid. And at the top is the CE, competitive exercise. At the bottom is, um, is the general the general uh, exercises. So from the top down, it gets less, it's more specific at the top. It's less specific at the bottom. At the bottom, you have huge amount of exercises with to draw from. At the very top, you basically only have one, which is the competitive exercise. So 
I just throw that in there because, you know, uh, it's, it's important when you're talking Bonderchuk quote unquote, that you understand that exercise categorization because it, um, it really helps you understand the system. He does not look at things in terms of really in terms, I mean, he can, but he doesn't really uh, define things in terms of specific strength and things like that. It's all based on those exercise classifications and how, and how those, those exercise transfer to the competitive event. Have you got access to that, um, that exercise classification pyramid? Right now? Well, not, not right now, but just for later? That could um, yes. stick online? Is yeah, that all right? Absolutely. I'll send it to you, yeah. Perfect. That would be great. Um, so just to- well, Tom doesn't mind, but I'm sure Tom won't mind. He's let me use it in uh, many of my presentations. He did such a good job with it. I, I, always, I, I never bothered trying to do it again because he did such a good job. I just use his. Awesome. Cool. So, I mean, there's a couple of questions that I've, um, I've written down. There's about, there's about six, actually. So just to very just simplify my um for, for my simplistic head so when when you're looking at peak condition so you're looking at them um how many weeks it takes to get to peak condition how do you know what peak condition is is it just is it solely based on the 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 length of the throw okay so that's a very good question okay and so for your listeners that are not throws coaches this is uh, that's probably the first question that comes in. How do I measure peak condition? I mean, if you're a football player, how 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 do you do that, right? So uh, for us, it is solely. Um, well, I wouldn't say it's solely, but the, it's you know it's mainly the the distance. Okay, yeah. so we mark we measure our furthest throw with each type of hammer we throw every day, and we record it. Simple as that. Um, but I back now, you know, those curves are not perfect all the time. You will have spikes. And so you, you know, there, they may come out one day and maybe you got a really good wind if you're a discus thrower. So it might go a little bit further. Right. So what I'll do is I, I, I'd always try to back it up with observations, you know, talking to the athlete, you know, how do you feel that? But basically most of it comes down to distance. What I've been doing uh, this last year as I've been using the uh, uh, bar accelerometer, the push accelerometer, and I've been uh, just for fun. I just saw it there and it was cheap. So I thought it was cheap enough. Anyways, I bought one and I thought, you know what, I'm going to um, I'm going to uh, throw slap one of these on the athletes. And I'm going to at the same time as uh, with, with, you know, just in training, I'm going to start measuring bar velocities. Now, you have to remember something here. We don't change the weights, okay? So when we start, if I give an athlete, a, say I give Sultana four sets of five snatches at 60 kilos, it's going to stay that way right through the development cycle, which is a lot different than what a lot of people do, okay? And that's a very important point for what I'm about to explain. So, sorry to interrupt. Interesting just, just, thing- just before I forget, Derek, um, mm-hmm. how do you choose that? Where's that weight come from? How do you pinpoint that? Well, this is the other thing. This, okay. this is the other thing. Okay, okay. so I'll back up. So yep, sorry, yeah. We don't max test. We we don't max test in this system because if I max test, it's gonna throw the body all out of whack. Okay. So if I start off a development cycle and I get everybody to max test so I can work off of a off of a percentage, then um you know they're gonna that trust me, okay? They are gonna they are gonna react to that just the 
just that workout, that workout where you tested. I mean, think about what you got to do when you max test. It's a huge draw on the central nervous system. That's going to affect their throwing. Could be positive, could be negative. I don't know. But I'm not going to – but if I the next day come out and do, you know, five sets of five and I do that for the rest of the cycle, that is going to skew – you know, the, the initial testing is going to skew my, my curve, okay? So I don't do that. Okay. Now that presents a problem because the problem is how do I determine the loads? Well, the way Bonnerchuk does it is he just guesses, like literally just off experience, just picks a weight. And this is where you get these, you know, these rumors and these, these or not rumors, but these, you know, these anecdotes about the athletes that train with them about how they lift so light. And yeah, I mean, a lot of it, he just picks weights and just, He's, I, I asked him in the first few weeks when he started writing programs with me or when he started writing programs and I was involved in it when he was, you know, after I turned Dylan over to him, I said, well, how do you know? Like, how, how do you, cause I used to work off all percentages and we used to max test once a week or every couple of weeks and all that kind of thing, or at the beginning of a cycle. And, and he just goes, oh, I just know. He goes, I just know that there's a range in there that, that, you know, a world-class guy is going to be at and, you know. It wasn't a big deal to him. Let's put it that way. For me, it is a little bit more of a big deal. I'm a little bit more anal. I'm a little bit more, a uh, bit more of a control freak. So I, ever since I started doing this, I've always wanted to figure out how can I find the range. And you know, the range that we we usually stay within is probably somewhere in the strength speed zone or speed strength zone. Although I do go up into max strength, uh, I, I do we do do a few cycles like that. Um, I will give them that kind of those that kind of work. Bondertrek doesn't at all. I, I still go there a little bit. I think just for the sake of the change, and I think they do need it every once in a while. Um, but mainly we stay in the middle of the of the force velocity curve there, and so or in the middle zone there. And so I just think, well, how do I know where I am? I mean, you know, they could. Because I know they're getting stronger because they're just getting stronger from from training, right? So along comes this push thing, and I'm thinking I'm start doing some research on it, and I realize that you know what one thing I see in the research is that if you are within certain speeds, generally speaking, you know you're going to be within certain a certain area on that force velocity curve. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do it. Okay, so I get the thing, and that's why I initially got it. But what happened was I get the thing, I strap it on to, to the girls, uh, Megan Rohde and Sultana and uh, Heather Stacy, who I'm throwing or who I'm coaching now. And, you know, remember, okay, so we start off a cycle. We have a, I have a curve that I, that I, a graph that I follow. I input the numbers every day and it gives me a performance curve, right? Well, lo and behold, I start doing it with the, with the, with the accelerometer and the path of the of the of the speeds that I was that I was recording with the accelerometer almost identically matched the path of the throwing distances <laughs> which I thought to me I was like wow that's pretty impressive like that's that says a lot right there right so um you know, I think, you know, one thing, it speaks a lot about using a complex methodology. So what that was telling me was when she was coming into peak condition in throwing, she was also coming into peak conditioning in her snatch. 
okay? Because it was getting faster. As she was throwing further, she was able to pull the, the, the weight faster. And there was generally that they were rising the same at the same. It's not identical, but it's, it's impressively close those curves. And so I thought, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. And so, um, so we've done, and I've repeated that on numerous cycles now, and it's quite interesting. And I've tried different schemes and I, but basically as long as I don't wave load the volume and intensity, I'm going to get very close with that, with that bar velocity curve as I do to the throwing curve. You know, to me, so back to your, back to my original point here is that if I have a spike in the middle of, of that curve, I can use the, I can use the, um, the, the, the bar speed measure that day, because when every day we throw every workout, we throw, we lift, we don't have sessions where we don't throw and we lift or we don't lift and we throw, we always do the same. That's the that's one, another hallmark of kind of this Bonner check system. We're doing everything all the time. And so if I have a spike one day, let's say, you know, we get a good wind or something or for some, or they catch one and there's a big spike. I I'll look at the, uh, I'll look at the, at the bar speed and I'll say, okay, well, the bar speed is following the normal curve, you know, so we're probably not coming into peak condition, but Let's say down the road when, when I suspect they are coming into peak condition, I will see, you know, I'll know it because A, they start putting a lot of throws at a far distance. They'll have, you know, say they're doing 10 throws, eight of them will be at a very high level and all the sets in the, all the sets in the, um, in, in the weight room are all going to be very fast and at a high level. And when I, and those are my only two measurables. Those are my only two objective measurables that I have. When I see that, I know they're in peak condition and I know I need to make a change very soon. That's really interesting. Very interesting. So what, um, what device are you using for your, um, to measure your bar velocity? You said I'm using a push accelerometer. That's the Canadian one, you know, it's the wireless one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know you know, I, I'd like to also get a Tendo. I just can't afford it. I mean, I, I fund this whole thing here myself. And so, um, uh, you know, so I, I, I mean, I'd rather pay 250 than 2,500. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. No, sorry, mate. Go on. You're all right. No, I was just going to say, but you know, I mean, I can, I can get three pushes. So I got three pushes. Each girl has one. Uh, I'm not coaching Megan anymore, but, you know, we got one from, you know, when I had three girls, they each had one. Now I have two, they each have one. And so they just strap it on and every time they lift, it's so easy to use. Right. So I, um, but I would like to line it up with a Tendo and see if I, you know, see if I'm getting the same results. But the, to me, the fact that those curves are following um, the throwing curves, you know, the absolute values to me on those speeds are not that important. It's the, it's the day-to-day relative values, you yeah, know. So I always take an average. I the 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 number I record in my data sheet is not the fastest. It's usually an average of the fastest rep of each set or something like that. And um, you know, because I want I I, I want to know on average where they're at each day, right? So that's well, great. Got some little guys knocking about as well. <laughs> yeah, my kids are my kids are playing around. So that's cool. Um, yeah. So, anyways, that's how that works. Cool. So, I mean, it's just it's just ticked over an hour. So, I don't want to keep you um, keep you much longer. But I know you obviously you you, you you're going to the World Championships um, next week. Is that right? 
It's probably happening. It's probably happening by the time uh, I put the podcast out. Um, so, so who is it that you've um, who is it you've got over there? Which girl is it? I've got Sultana Frizzell, just only uh, only Sultana. Okay, cool. So, have you got any um, after world championships? Have you got anything, any big events coming up? Somewhere where people can kind of um, keep in touch with your work. Um, no, I, I'm, I don't have any conferences scheduled. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, don't have anything scheduled right now. I'm sort of looking for things. Um, I can be, I can be, I mean, people can just reach out to me. It's fine. Uh, I'm usually a lot of times, especially in this next month when I'm away, um, I may be, it may take me a while to get back to you, but I, but I do, um, you know, um, or go through Martin's website. Um, I answer a few the odd questions. Someone will send him a question. He'll send it to me, and I'll, I'll answer. Um, I'm always willing to help out people that are uh, that are interested in this, um, and you know, if I can pick their brains as well, I, I would appreciate that. But um, yeah, I'm always willing to help where I can. Well, as as we said before, we're probably going to put it out. Put the the podcast will probably go out after the World Championship anyway. Right. So hopefully, you'll have um, a bit more time after you come back after a successful World Championships. Sure. Yeah. And if you want to do another one of these, uh, some other time, if people have questions, I mean, this whole Bonnerchuk thing just creates all kinds of questions, you know, because it's a very hard thing to explain. It's a very simple system, but it's hard to explain because there's so much fluidity to it. So, you know, if anybody's got questions, we, we could do, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm open to anything. No, it'd be great. It'd be great to do another one and, uh, and get a bit more detail on the, on, on a few, and a few issues, but, What's the what's the best place to, for people to get to know about? I know he's obviously got numerous books. Where's the best place to go to learn about the system itself? Well, probably Martin's website. If you pick around there, I mean, he doesn't have anything on there that goes eight. Oh, I, I I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't speak for him there, but I'm not sure if there's anything on there that goes from A to Z. Here's the Bonnerchuk system, but he is probably for sure. He's undoubtedly the greatest resource online that you can find on the Canadian Athletics Coaching Center. Uh, I posted a lot of older stuff about Bonnerchuk and there's a lot of nuggets in there that you can get. Um, I know that Dr. Bonnerchuk, I mean, if you're into the books, the books are a tough read and some are better than others. But once you start working the system and if you're interested in it, the books make a lot more sense after and they're worth it if only for the charts. So um, you can go to uh, to Ultimate Athlete Concepts, uh, the guy that, and I'm not, hey, I don't get anything out of this at all. So uh, I don't even get a free book. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm just purely on the up and up here. Um, if you go, uh, the Yosef, uh, I can't remember his last name, the guy that runs it there, he's got all kinds of uh, Bonnerchuk stuff there. It's really good. Um, and it, they just came out with a new uh, a CERN book, which I might get. It looks really good. So I see I've seen that bomb uh, bopping around the net now. So, but and what's anyways, the what's, so what's the what's the Canadian site that you mentioned? Canadian Athletics Coaching Center. Do a Google search on that. I think it's athleticscoaching.ca. And you have to you have to sort of sign up for it. But once you're there, there's a ton of free print material which I loaded on there. This is eight years ago, like, uh, but it's still all up there. Um, anything I would send anybody is on there because I literally posted just about every single piece of document I had in my library. So um, you go on there, look. You can. There's 
numerous ways to find bonder trucks. It's very easy to find. There is also videos on there for from some of the some of the presentations that that uh, him and I did together, and some ones that he did on his own that we filmed. There's a number of them on there. Um, I think you have to pay for those, but they're pretty cheap um, if you if you want to do the video thing. So cool. And, and you say you're on Facebook and uh, Facebook and Twitter as well. Facebook and Twitter, Twitter, evil at evil track is my Twitter uh, handle and, um, and Facebook, just Derek Evely. Cool. Well, like I'm I say, cool. Well, like I say, um, we've kept you for, for ages now, but there's, um, there's so much to, to kind of take away and I've, I've got tons of notes. So if you will not mind, we'll, we'll get you back on for part two if that's all right. Absolutely. Well, I'll, um, I'll let you go and just thank you for your time again. No problem. I really enjoyed it, and 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 you do a good job with that uh, with this podcast. You're doing great work. Thank you, mate. Cheers. Appreciate that. All right. Speak to you soon. All right. Take care. See you, mate. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 51 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Don't forget, you can check out all the links that Derek mentioned on the episode if you go to PaceyPerformance.co.uk forward slash 51. You can also catch up with all previous episodes of the podcast, over 50 now, at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash podcast. And just one last mention for the Pacey Performance webinar series with Dan Baker. Get over to Pacey Performance and you can see all the information around what's going to be a great morning speaking with Dan Baker. And I will speak to you in episode 52.